0: When Japanese tennis player Naomi Osaka announced that she would miss the French Open media conferences last year to take care of herself mentally, she came in for a torrent of abuse. This kind of started yesterday. Like yesterday I just woke up and I was really depressed but I don't know why. I'm just an okay player that was able to play okay. Like I'm so sad right now. uh, She wrote in Time magazine that she should have been prepared for what unfolded. But this is just one of the many pressures our elite athletes face. The highs of success, the despair of failure injury, being dropped by selectors and life after a sporting career ends Just think for a moment about the vitriol aimed at the All Blacks, especially Coach Ian Foster for the team's recent inconsistent performances. To find out how athletes approach these kinds of challenges I spoke to recently returned Silver Ferns captain amelia Ann Econazio to retired Olympic medal winning rower Nathan Twaddle, who was also an athlete life advisor high performance uh, sport New Zealand and to psychiatrist Rod Corbin, who's worked with athletes across sporting codes in New Zealand since 2004.
1: Primarily like any psychologist my job is to keep well people well in a sports setting supporting athletes and coaches and and staff around them to to perform in environments that are often quite stressful and to keep them well in those environments.
0: You've worked in this area for something like 30 years what have you noticed in terms of the, the pressures the expectations on athletes my sense is that they've always been intense, but there's something about social media uh, that's made it more intense now. Would that be right?
1: Yeah, I think so. Athletes in their day-to-day lives and high-performance athletes in particular uh, are exposed to low levels of chronic stress. You know, they're often fatigued. Uh, they're reminded every day that they need to be better, uh, and so for your know, average Joe or Jane, blogs that's quite difficult. But I can go to work. And I can have a really bad day as a psychologist, which probably happens quite a lot. And the only person that sees it is my clients. And they might leave the office going, well, Rob was a bit poor at his job today. And off they go. But if one of our uh, top athletes has a bad day at the office, it's actually, uh, they're reminded of it uh, in the press and in the media. And often they're reminded of it in 12 months' time when something else comes up. So I think their failures and their vulnerabilities are often highlighted to the world around them. It's a really difficult thing to manage for them.
0: Nathan, what are your memories of being involved with sporting at that level and the pressures that came with it?
2: Positive and negative. The two kind of pinnacles, I guess, of my career were the two 200 games I was fortunate enough to go to. And the first one, I was a bit older than everyone else in the, in the team, but I was still coming up in my progression. Every year I was getting better and better. And I'd sit down, there was lots of press around the games, and it was all pretty positive. And look at this potential, aren't they doing well? And we ended up fourth, which oftentimes people go, oh, you know, we're terrible, worst position. Uh, but actually I came out of that going, we actually performed really well and everyone's really positive about it and the press is all really great about it. Then the next Olympics, actually again, fortunate enough to win a medal, um, a lot of the press in my own feeling was like, oh, I'm going backwards. I'm not going as well as I was. I'm not performing as well as I was. And it put a lot more pressure in um stress around that so it was sort of fascinating looking back and you know, talking to people about how actually getting fourth in some ways was almost better psychologically than than getting third and um just purely down to the stage of career I was at at each at the last one I was, I was thinking about um maybe I need to finish the first one I thought oh, I'm definitely going to carry on so um, interesting how kind of the context of where you are and, and the stage of your career you're at can play a really big role in how you feel and in your, your mood and your belief in yourself. And if you're not really robust in how you think about that, it can really knock you if you're, if you're not kind of self-aware and, and have some things that you value about yourself that that aren't just your performance.
0: Nathan, how aware are you at the time of the expectations of the country? I imagine you are your own harshest critic. Uh, you know, you've worked so hard for these moments. But, you know, the, the, the expectations of New Zealanders watching, the expectations in the press, you know, that phrase that's so often used, gold medal prospect or medal prospect, it just feels like we put a lot of pressure on our athletes.
2: Uh, yeah I think that's definitely an underlying thing. there is that yeah you know, often what that surfaces on a day to day is like who do I respect and who do I care about i you know, it's my teammates and and the coaches probably first and my you know friends and family who tend to be kind of more about what you know we love you no matter what and then it is the public and that um desire to represent New Zealand, which is you know you often hear a lot of young athletes talking about that you know I had a dream of representing New Zealand and going to the peak of my sport and winning, being number one, and um, that can definitely play a role if people have anchored themselves and that's what I'm gonna be. For me, it was it was definitely a little bit of wanting to um, have that respect of my teammates, but in the background, I think that the, the media voice has gotten louder and, and people's, and our awareness as athletes of what others think of us through social media, it has increased a lot. So those reference points you've got of oh, other people think this about me or not, has um, increased the risk, I think, that you you start to doubt yourself, maybe. Now, I'm I'm a wee while retired now, um, but I also did work with athletes. Uh, you know, worked alongside Rod Fire Performance Sport New Zealand in that uh, life management space with athletes and, and saw it in others as well.
0: Amelia-Anne, you're right in the thick of it, of course, with the Silver Ferns. And as we speak, congratulations for um, for the wins. But, you know, I, I, again, I think there's been a lot of focus on the Silver Ferns. It's been such an upsy-downsy few years for the team. Do you have to block out the media noise and the social media noise when you are preparing for a big match?
3: Every single thing in your life can be noise depending on how you look at it. So I guess when it comes to social media and media in general, yeah, I guess sometimes it, it really depends on where your, what your state you're in. So I guess where your mental health really is at. So I guess if you're in a position where you're feeling really good, you're really confident, you're enjoying training and things are going well, like in home life or, or away from your sport kind of life, then it's easier to take on. If there are some negative comments, cause there's always going to be something floating around, but if you're under the pump a little bit more, you're potentially a little bit more susceptible to the comments that are being thrown around, whether that's on social media or whether that is directly from media as well too. But um, I actually find it a really good practice to just block it out regardless of, of what kind of um, state that I'm in now, because it just allows me to focus a whole lot more and, and actually it's actually not the most important thing to listen to <laughs> anyway. So it's a good practice for me just to entirely block it all out.
0: And does it help being part of a team? I've always thought that it, perhaps it's harder for individual athletes because it's all on them. When you're a team, you have support within that team.
3: Yeah, that's a really that's actually a really good point. Yeah, maybe pros and cons of it actually because um, you could be playing really well and, and your team's still not being able to achieve what is considered good enough by the media. So, you know, you're thrown into that or you could not be playing as well and your team still be performing really, really well. Um, And then you, you get the positive light shone in you by the media. So I think it kind of goes both ways in that respect.
0: I was just thinking too, and it doesn't feel so very long ago, just in the last few years, where our elite New Zealand women's sporting teams could expect criticism in the media for crying you know for showing real emotion for showing great disappointment I mean, and I, I just hear you kind of laughing at it now because it feels so ridiculous but it was a thing wasn't it it was seen as a weakness and i've never understood that
3: yeah um i guess sometimes showing any kind of emotion can be oh, has in the past been seen as a weakness and it can still be an undertone to how people operate when they see any kind of emotion in you i Um, potentially could be quite controversial in saying this, but I think sometimes as a women's team, we're held to higher expectations um, at at some point. So, yeah, I mean, I'm a very big emotions person, so I I laugh at it because it's just beyond me that, that we hold people to those kind of expectations where we judge them on seeing them show their emotions.
0: Rod, what do you think you must have had, and I'm not asking for any names whatsoever, you must have had some really moving conversations with um, athletes over the years who've got, I think golf calls it the yips. You know, they've just had a really bad patch. You know, the All Blacks have have been going through something similar recently. And how do you see them through that? Because, of course, elite sport is a physical game, but it's also a mental game.
1: Yes, I have a... Big belief in trying to get people to identify what is more than the winning. You know? uh, It's a question I ask people all the time and coaches, what's more than the winning of it? So even in those moments where things aren't going well, you know, uh, what's more than the winnings? So what are we trying to do? What's the bigger picture, if you like? And, and again, i was alluding to what Nathan said, it's this, this values-based stuff. Why do I do the thing I do? I do it because I love it. I think you said that as well. And so what is it you love about it you know, beyond the winnings? So it's just trying to keep them connected to that bit However, you know, <laughs> there's no doubt that because they are very competitive people and, and they have high expectations of themselves when they don't perform at that level, they can still be upset As that point you made before. You know, so if you lose, you, sh- you should be upset because it's really important to you. It actually shows that you care. So I think to try and navigate them through it as there's an identity piece to that around, you know, you're more than just this thing uh, and you're more than just this outcome. That's probably the trick. And it's really easy to say just Quite
2: hard to do, as Amelia ran, and Nathan will probably tell you.
0: Well, Nathan, can I pick up on that with you?
2: Yeah, absolutely. It was Rod was my psychologist for a long time, and and there would often be what we'd we'd talk about turns the kid in terms of getting my head around where I was. There were some very very successful uh, rowers and just general athletes in New Zealand, in, in the time where I competed, and you know, there was always a little bit of comparison and am I good enough for this and, and I think it's something even as I've gotten older that's swapped into the other side of life am I, am I good enough for, for this and, and what I'm doing and what I guess I I value out of what I um well I guess the habit or the thing I've sort of built over time and based on what I've I learned as an athlete is that the the sun generally still comes up tomorrow it's still going to be me me with all my faults and foibles, and, but also my strengths and, and history of what I have done and kind of got a back step to go and put one foot in front of the other. And having that context of it, it's bigger than just today, it, there's more to come.
0: Amelia, and same for you. I mean, you have to have confidence when you and your teammates go on that court. You simply have to believe in yourself, don't you?
3: Yes, the best thing would be to believe in yourself at, at all times, but that's definitely not the case (laughs) sometimes and and i think as even just from me from my personal experience i mean i have constant self-doubt so i 100 percent do not always feel confident in myself and i think even the games we just played was like my first test matches in 18 months so i can definitely tell you that i did not walk on court feeling confident i did at some points but was still really worried about how it was going to be and, and I, I've still gone on to then have played some of my best games throughout my career and not felt confident um, even in those moments so I think it's something that some athletes just constantly work through and, and given the right strategies and, and I mean it's something I've always gone to rod with and worked with and now that I'm more experienced I don't have to constantly go to him but I've just got little strategies that I use and the gold would just be to be confident all the time, but it's just not the reality as an athlete
1: well, on that, uh, Miller Anne's just hit the nail on the head. Is actually, you asked me what I do. I spend lots of my time with athletes trying to dispel those myths. Is that none of us have total self-belief. We all have self-doubt. So they go searching for, they must have self-belief I must be confident. Well, that's a myth because it's just not, it's just not possible. So it's, how do you, how do you still perform in those moments where you you do have self-doubt, There's lots of reasons you don't have self-belief. When I was a very young practitioner, you know, I'd be working with all these athletes that were these physical specimens, and, and I would sit at there going, my God, they are so fragile and vulnerable. They have the same doubts about themselves that I do. And, and again, i said at the beginning of the interview, that's normal, and these are normal people we're talking about.
0: One of the other aspects to this that I was really interested to talk about was retirement, and it was in 2011, Nathan, when you stepped away from, uh, from the oars from, uh, and stepped away from rowing. How big a gap and how big an adjustment was it for you? Because I'm just thinking, just in the last year or so, Dame Valerie Adams, our own, um, has retired Roger Federer, about to Serena Williams. You know, these big names have been at the absolute top of their game, world leading for so many years. When you walk away from elite sport, it must be a huge adjustment.
2: Yeah, yeah, it was. And I was very fortunate, I guess, to to choose the timing of my exit. I I was still rowing at, at 34. The, the team still wanted me, and, and I literally woke up one morning, I'd slept through my alarm in and the, and the sort of summer off-season training and went, okay, that's it, I'm done. And at the time, actually, Rob Rod was going, oh, you know, take a moment, think about it. And uh, I just was was pretty adamant at, at that time. And that was uh, 18 months out from the London Olympics. Uh, and so I had lots of moments over the next six months or 18 months going, oh, oh no. And watching the olympics was really hard where the team did really well i was stoked for the team but i think oh, i could have, i could have been there and wasn't and then uh, i was young enough that i thought oh you know maybe i could make a comeback maybe i could make a comeback and and so i was always sort of questioning that and I, I was fortunate i guess i i landed in a role where the whole point of the team was to start to prepare athletes for that transition so i kind of went into a role where I got to look at that a bit more deeply around what the principles of that were and the process of it was and, and to, to start talking to others about it. And I was living it myself. And so I could share that experience with others and there's not many aha moments. They do come, but it is much about going off as a support team, we've got to lay the foundational bricks so that in seven, five, 10 years time, when they get to that point, we've helped them take the first step on that journey and how I think the things that made me good as an athlete are still useful. I don't have to go over and try and be like everyone else who's maybe got different strengths as a as a business person or, a, or whatever role you're in. I can lean on the things that may be an athlete. I don't have to totally let go of that identity.
0: Amelia-Ann, you mentioned that you were away from the court for 18 months. That I'm sure in some ways felt like a, a lifetime and maybe in another way like a heartbeat. But did you miss it? Did you miss the thrill of the sport?
3: yeah i definitely did um i think though because i stayed heavily in touch um off the court with our leadership group and with our um our civil, elder silver level kept me connected kind of kept the fire burning even though it naturally would have anyway um i feel but i uh would consider myself a, a real like competitor i love competing i love winning a little bit more but um yeah, so, yeah, really missed that side of it. That's, that's probably one of the biggest parts that I just um, I, I couldn't wait to get back into.
0: Rod, Nathan made a good point there, actually, that he chose to retire. Now, that's not always the case for our relief athletes. It might be injury, for example. So suddenly they, they may have thought they had some time to go, and then suddenly their career is cut short. You must have worked with athletes who have really struggled with that transition because it's so all-absorbing. I I was watching a program called The Dog House. This is tangential. And there was an elite Paralympic athlete. He couldn't compete anymore. And he wanted a dog, and he thought he wanted a dog to go running with him and out on the kayak and, you know, be active. And he ended up, spoiler alert, with a lap dog, really lazy little thing, (laughs) who didn't mind going for the occasional walk. And he said, well, sometimes... I don't even leave the apartment. We just stay and relax. And I just thought that was kind of a beautiful story about learning how to reshape your life.
1: I saw that same episode. I was, just, I was thinking the same thing, actually. <laughs> the, liter- the literature on athlete transitions pretty clear, is that transitions work better when it, when the athlete makes the decision themselves. So like Nathan, they wake up one morning and go, you know, what? Well, that's me done. And they sort of do it on their own terms. And most transitions seem to go a little bit better the transitions don't go well, typically when it's ended by injury or even deselection. Uh, And those transitions are a little bit more difficult. And I think all three of us have talked a bit about identity in here. And as the example you've given about the Paralympic athlete and the dog, it's just like, I am this person, this athlete who has this lifestyle, that's what I am. And then it ends, and somehow you've got to shift it a little bit. And as Nathan sort of says, you, you try and hold on to it a little bit, or you try and hold on to it and then you realize you can't so it is about shifting who you are as a person and your identity so i'm no longer x the athlete i'm x the husband wife mother father accountant beachcomber journalist you know? so and we use the word transition as a transition and a process and i really like Nathan, nathan's story you haven't actually told me that Nathan before. it's actually really good around i'm still physically able um, I can still do it until you get to a point where physically you go, well, actually, no, I can't do it anymore. So I think it is a transitioning and, and can take a lot of time. I think what has done between now and certainly over the last few years, and as a role like Nathan had, you have the players' associations, part of Sport New Zealand themselves, have, have systems in place where we're trying to encourage athletes, even when they're athletes, to, To be more than that athlete, you know, to maybe do some education or or forge out some sort of career if they can, or try and develop something. So when their career as an athlete ends, they're already on another pathway. I think that's really important
0: amelia Rand, just to bring this to a conclusion, I've, you know, been dwelling a little bit perhaps on the negative, but I wanted to finish by talking about the positive. And you you mentioned before that you love competing. You particularly enjoy winning. I guess there is really nothing, for those of us who haven't experienced it, there can be nothing like winning a series, winning a medal, going hard, knowing you've all played your best. and, And that sense of achievement uh yeah i guess
3: um i mean and i guess all athletes know it's like the the huge highs of winning um you you take with the massive lows of of losing and and i think once upon a time and there is no comparison to winning and and, you know working for me it's the team sport feeling like you've really worked together as a team um to achieve that but um the lows i think can really take you take you to low places as well too so the big thing that I've learned is to keep um, a real perspective around it and actually having kids for me has given me way more perspective uh, or ability to keep perspective um, through the highs and through the lows. So I think I definitely enjoy winning um, and I I, I take it as well too, but there's always like a little bit of bigger picture thinking in there as well too. So, which is good. So I, I, I keep a little bit more level headed through a win and a little bit more level headed through a loss now as well too, but, but yeah, I mean, there is no greater feeling than, you know, being able to win a medal or, you know, win a pinnacle event or something like that. And um, that's why, that's really why we play or one part of why we play.
0: Silverfern's captain, Amelia Ann Ignazio, Nathan Twaddle, and psychologist Rod Corbin.